Welcome back to another episode of the Spooky Rip Jean Mom. My name is Peyton Kennedy, and today we're going to talk about the Honolulu Strangler. Before we start, I want to apologize if I sound really congested. I am fighting a sinus infection. I'm hoping in about a week or less it's cleared up. I've been taking Mucinex D and having nasal spray. The problem with the nasal spray is they want me to dry up my nose, but we live in the desert, so I also have to put like aquifer in my nose, like around it too, so it doesn't completely dry up. Um, so uh, Bailey also has a sinus infection. Paisley started to get kind of a cold, um, but as soon as we noticed it, we gave her some vitamin C. We um, put little like I have um, essential vapor rub that's good for babies, and I put it on her chest and on her feet, and then put socks on. Um, and then Zarbies, if you have a baby over the age of one, between one and two, um, they have a dark honey syrup, which it's not a cough medicine. It's a cough suppressant and it's a dietary supplement. And I checked with her pediatrician. She is allowed to have it. Um, so we, you know, she had a kind of a nasty cough one day. I started to give her that and within the next day she was totally fine, um, which was great, but, I'm the last person to get this sinus infection out of my family, and I'm ready for it to go away. But I've been taking my medicine like I'm supposed to, doing everything that Doc said, so fingers crossed that I start to feel better. Um, but that is why this episode took so long to get out, is because I've been taking care of everybody in the house, apparently besides myself. Um, and then I did also want to say that the Honolulu Strangler has never been caught they do believe they found their person, um, but this did take place back in the 1980s, so it is a little bit hard because they didn't take the DNA they needed um, to kind of close it out now. Um, so let's get started. So the Honolulu Strangler is one of Hawaii's first known serial killers, besides of not knowing who it is. Um, he or she did kill between 1985 and 1986, murdering um, five women ages 17 to 36 and the FBI does later get involved and they profile him as an opportunist. Vicki Purdy was his first victim at the time. She was only 25 years old. She did originally grow up in North Carolina. She grew up in foster care and she had been a cheerleader in high school where she also played softball and she also roller skated. All of her friends described her as gorgeous um, and blunt, but, and she did have a lot of friends in North Carolina, but Hawaii is where she always wanted to be. She got married to Gary Purdy, where they were married for five years. He was a helicopter pilot and a chief warrant officer with the 24th Aviation Battalion. Vicki worked at a rental store in Hawaii, and at the beginning of their marriage, it was rough, um, but now, as it kind of progressed, things were starting to get better. So on May 29th, 1984 at 9 p.m., Vicky was going to go out with friends. And so she kissed Gary goodbye. And then she got into a taxi to go meet with her friends for the night. But she never made it to where they were at. The taxi driver did say, though, that he took her from the Blue Water Cafe and dropped her off at the Shorebird Hotel around midnight where she was going to grab her car. When she didn't come home that evening after her friends, um, Gary tried to page her, but she never responded. So he immediately started looking for her, and he found her car at the parking lot that she was going to pick it up from. 
And then on May 30th, Vicky was found on an embankment near Lagoon Drive. She was wearing the same yellow jumpsuit as when she went missing. Her hands were tied behind her back with a parachute cord and she had been raped. Now, an autopsy did confirm that she had been strangled with a ligature, and police believe one of two things could have happened. She was ambushed in her car, um, at her car or in the parking lot. Another driver uh, could have caused the distraction to lure her out with the accident. But her husband Gary told Honolulu Star Bulletin that Vicky was street smart and would know who to trust. He also said that two people would have had to kidnap Vicky because one time she knocked the shit out of him. Good for her. I mean, not knocking the shit out of him because spousal abuse is not okay. Um, but good on her that she would put up a fight. Now, there nothing came really from Vicky's case. It just, that's kind of where it was. It just halted. Um, and the killer was dormant until 1986. And that could have been any reason. He could have moved. He could have gone to jail. Um. He could have had a baby. He could have gotten married. Things like that. So, in um, 1986, when he killed again, the second victim was Regina Sakamoto. She was originally from Kansas, and she was only 17 years old. She went to Leluha High, and she was planning on going to Hawaii Pacific University in the fall of 1986. Now, before you come at me for pronouncing Hawaii the way I did, that is how native hawaiians pronounce it the w makes a v so don't come at me for that so regina's friends and family would describe her as as bookish smart fun loving and everybody's friend on january 14th regina missed her bus to school so at 7 15 she called her boyfriend to say she'd be late and then she went to wait for public transportation for a bus nearby um and that's where she was last seen she never made it onto the bus, and people assumed she may have gotten a ride from someone and possibly someone she didn't know. Her body was then found January 15th at Kihi Lagoon, and that was only a mile from where they found Vicky. Her hands were also tied behind her back with a parachute cord, and she had been raped and strangled. But this time, unlike Vicky, Regina was found naked from the waist down, and one foot was tied to a rock with an electrical cord. At this point, with so many similarities and how close the two bodies were found together, police immediately linked the two cases, and at this point, they knew that they had a serial killer. Her brother, Omar, said she was late for school that day, and she was sitting at a bus stop in front of, di of diners in Wapua. Now, Regina's stepfather is a huge fucking dick. Just gonna say that. Um, because he told the press um, that... In quotes, she was putting herself on the line by living down there with her Caucasian features. They just don't mix. We do have transients, but not the crook type, like down there, high transient. I firmly believe she stuck out because she was Caucasian. Like, sir, the, the killer is described as an opportunist. He saw a young girl by herself, no one else around, waiting for transportation. It was just a crime of opportunity. I don't think he cared what she looked like. Plus, this is your child, like your stepchild that you're talking about. Why would you, like, I just think he's very rude to just be like, oh, because of her Caucasian features. She's 17. She's a child. Like, and she just died. Like, even if that was the case, don't be rude. Like, don't say it like that. Just be like, 
you know, I don't even know. Just don't say shit like that. Um, an autopsy did reveal, though, that Regina had high levels of acid phosphates, which were found in the vagina. And you might be like, Peyton, why didn't you just say sperm? Because it wasn't regular sperm. Um, when you get a vasectomy, it doesn't just stop, like, it doesn't stop the production of sperm. You still produce sperm. It's just essentially dead sperm, like it can't do anything, which is the acid phosphates in it. Um, so that means that the killer was unable to ejaculate properly, which is likely because he had a vasectomy, um, which is key to why they think it is the person they think it is. On January 30th, 1986, Denise Hughes never showed up for work. She was only 21 and she worked as a secretary at a telephone company. She was also married to someone who was in the Navy and they were stationed in Pearl Harbor. Her husband, by the way, his name was Charles. Um, in my notes, so I like to write my notes. One, I like my handwriting. And two, I don't like staring at a computer screen for too long. So like typing back and forth while I'm writing like notes from articles and TV and stuff like that starts to give me a headache. Um, so I like to write and Paisley got a hold of my notebook. And so there's like crayon drawings all over my notes. So if I'm like kind of starting to stumble, it's because I'm trying to figure out what I wrote in between the brown crayon that she wrote on my gray, because I write with pencil, on my gray lead pen writing. So if I sound like I'm struggling, it's because I'm trying to read between her little drawings. Um, so it is believed on January 30th that Denise arrived to the bus stop earlier than normal, but then she obviously, like I said, never showed up from work and it wasn't her routine to take the bus every day. Now in a like, couple articles, I saw that construction workers found her body. And then in other articles, I saw, um, that three teenagers found her body, but it was three males each time in the article. So on February 1st, her body was found already decomposing by three males. It was wrapped in a tarp in the Manolua stream near where it flows into Kahi Lagoon. Her hands were tied with a parachute cord like the first two victims, and she had been um, strangled as well. She was identified, though, on February 5th when dental records were sent to the mainland. Now, because her body had already started decomposing, it couldn't be determined if Denise had been raped, but with the same way she had been tied, like the other two victims, and then connecting her to those cases, they just assumed that she had been. Um, and one of her work supervisors, Donna Peterka, said she always had a smile on her face no matter what. The day before it happened, everyone had the flu. She was working the reception desk, and I said, I can't believe you're smiling. The next day, that was it. She was just the ideal employee, which is really sad because the, the day before, she was helping her coworkers out. She was, like, at work pretty much from the sounds of what I read, doing a lot of the work that she typically doesn't do because her coworkers were sick. And then the next day, she's just kidnapped and brutally raped and murdered. Like, that's so sad. So now that the Honolulu police have realized that they have a serial killer, this is their third victim, they have to do something about it. Like, they can't just keep letting these girls die. So they set up a task force to investigate, um, and they were from sex crimes and homicide. They also reached out to the FBI and the Green River Task Force because they were investigating Gary Ridgway, 
um, who was a killer also at the time. Members of the task force, though, included Robert Keppel. Um, he investigated Ted Bundy. He was originally from Spokane, um, Washington, and he really devoted his life to finding these big serial killers. Um, another member included Dave Reichert. Um, he's a Republican representative, a veteran, a former elected sheriff of King County, Washington. Um, and I believe he was also on the task force to trying to find Gary Ridgeway. Now, the Green River Killer, which was the other task force I just mentioned, um, he strangled his victims, but instead of them just being crimes of opportunity, they were often runaways, sex workers, and other easily accessible victims. So at this point, the Honolulu Task Force created a profile. They said that he, this killer would be an opportunist who attacked and abducted vulnerable women or in vulnerable positions, such as a parking lot or waiting for a bus. They also said that he probably wasn't a stalker and likely would live or work on Wapu or Sand Island. Now, I'm going to pause in the profile real fast because to me, it does sound like he may have had to do, like, Vicky took um, an Uber and then he found her in the parking lot. Um, Regina barely went, you know, she always took the school bus. She never really took public transportation, but Denise always, always took the bus to work. So I think he may have seen Denise a couple times at the bus stop and kind of realized her schedule. Um, he would be driving a cargo van, cream colored, possibly, um, would be Caucasian or mixed. He would be 30 to 40 years old. And at this point, he'd have no criminal record. So police chief Douglas Gibb said in quotes, he's an individual who may be experiencing girlfriend or marital problems. And the selection of victims is probably the result of opportunity or chance encounters. Shortly after this, though, a cool thing that came from it was um, two-way radios were put into buses citywide. So this would allow drivers to call for assistance if they saw anything. Unfortunately, they wouldn't, it was put in, but it wasn't used because on March 26th, um, of 1986, Luis J. Medrios, um, went missing. She was 25 as well. She usually lived in Wapua, but the visiting, she was visiting her family in Kauai. I really hope I pronounced that right. If I didn't, I am so, 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 so sorry. Um, she was only there for the reading of her mother's will, and she was also at the time three months pregnant. She had, as a child or as a teenager, left her family and had become a big problem with the law. She was always in trouble. She lived with beach people and she had several kids. Um, but eventually she moved back home and she actually started to settle down and start working. Her older sister, Brenda Durant, said in quotes, she was finally happy. She found peace within herself, end quotes. So she was traveling back home um, and she was going to take the bus from the airport to her apartment. She also told her family the plan, but she never arrived home. And on April 2nd, road workers found her body near Waikiki Stream under a freeway overpass. She was found 12 miles from the previous victims. So she was also found nude from the waist down and her hands had also been tied with parachute cord. 
she had severe decomposition, so it wouldn't allow the medical examiner to um, determine if she had been sexually assaulted. But again, because she was found in the same manner as the first three victims, uh, she was instantly linked. The first three victims, though, were found around the Honolulu airport, and Louise had just traveled through there. Um, so the task force ended up setting up undercover women. They said women. They didn't specify if it was police or not. Uh, at Kahi Lagoon and Honolulu Airport. This, though, ended up not panning out. It didn't lead anywhere. So then on April 29th, Linda Piscay, um went missing. She was 36 years old. She is the fifth and final victim. Uh, she had left her apartment in the morning and she never returned home. She had a roommate at the time, and this got her roommate kind of worried, a little bit suspicious, because Linda had already planned out an evening work meeting that she never attended, and she was always on time for those things. Um, her roommate got super worried later um, because Linda didn't go to work, uh, and then she also found out that Linda's car was parked and unlocked by the Nimitz um, H1 viaduct. She called police immediately when she found this out. So once the police or the task force for, you know, the Honolulu Strangler um, learned about this, they had learned that witnesses had seen Linda's car um, with its emergency lights flashing and another vehicle was parked besides the car. It was described as a cream American-made van with letters on its back window also reported a man of medium build in his late 30s or 40s and of Caucasian or mixed race, which matched the profile. The task force also said the way the car was pulled up, it looked like Linda's car had the emergency lights on and the way the van had pulled up, it was like the van was trying to help her, but they weren't around. Linda wasn't there. The man wasn't there. Um, so there were no leads until May 3rd. When Howard Andrew Gay called the task force and told them that a psychic told him the location of a body on Sand Island. So he took the task force to the spot, but at that spot there was no body. So the police, though, since they were already out there, they didn't want to waste resources. So they searched the entire island in the off chance. And they found Linda nude from the waist down. She was found on a dirt road, hands tied with a parachute cord. So, again, acid phosphates were found around her genitals. She had been partially covered by debris and dirt, but had a cement block on her back this time. Now, the police were suspicious of Howard's story um, about a psychic, because why wouldn't the psychic call the police herself or himself? Um, and why did the psychic, through Howard, who at this point, has no relation to the women, how would she get that to him? Like, what what would have made the psychic tell him about this? Like, because normally psychics see, like, the aura around you. They see things that have happened in your life. Um, so what happened in his life that made the psychic see that there was a dead woman on Sand Island? And also, why, like, he never explained why he went to see a psychic. Uh, so they began looking into Howard because he was mid-30. Like, he was, like, between 30 and 40. He was a white male. He uh, 
matched pretty much everything that the profile gave. So a little background into who Howard was. He was born in 1943 and he was originally from Buffalo, New York. He had joined the Army and was stationed at the George Air Force Base, which was 30 minutes from Apple Valley, California, where he lived for 15 years. He was honorably discharged in 1965 and he attended Victor Valley College where he received his associate's degree. He started working at the Continental Telephone Company in Victorville and he worked as a lineman and a teletype repairman. So in 1965, he got married to Rita Thompson, which was his college sweetheart, and they had two children, Justin and Jason. In 1968, uh, he started working for the Flying Tiger Line at the LA International Airport, where he trained cargo aircraft mechanics. And then in 1980, he relocated to the Daniel K. Um, Inua International Airport, which was in Honolulu, Hawaii. He rented a three-bedroom home, and he drove a cream-colored van, but in 1983, he divorced from his wife. And in one time, his family came to visit from California, and he was so upset and mad, he made them stay in a hotel. And then two days later, he made his ex-wife and two sons go back to California. His neighbors said that he was nice, he was always wanting to help others, uh, and so... Howard was a member of the LA Marina Sailing Club or the Law Marina Sailing Club. Um, I believe it's law. My my apologies. Staff said um, his appearance was that he was like clean cut, non-suspicious, but his behavior started to concern employees uh, because one employee said that he became obsessed with an employee who worked there. Um, who fit the same descriptions as the Honolulu Stranglers victims. The employees said that Howard would stare at this employee for hours and would offer her rides that she would always reject. But one time she took up an offer from a biker and how after Howard had asked her if she needed a ride and she rejected him and he was pissed. Uh, Howard had also beaten up a woman who had said no to getting into his vehicle. So, on May 9th, the task force arrested Howard Gary as the prime suspect for the Honolulu killings. So, he fit the killer's description and profile based on his age. He did, in fact, have a vasectomy, and he didn't have a criminal record. He was also working at the airport, which would give him access to the parachute cord. They interviewed his ex-wife and his uh, girlfriend, and they said that Howard was a persuasive talker, he enjoyed bondage, so he tied up their hands behind their back while he had sex with them. Howard's girlfriend also said that women went missing and were also killed on the nights that they had fought and ended up with, like, Howard storming out. So the task force was very thorough. They ended up interrogating Howard for 10 hours, and then when that wasn't really working, they ended up giving him a polygraph test. Unfortunately, like I've said before, polygraph tests are inadmissible in court, but these results had also come back inconclusive. There was no direct evidence to link him to the crimes that wasn't circumstantial. Being, yes, they found the acid phosphate on the vaginas, meaning the killer had a vasectomy. But there could also just be he could be infertile, infertile things like that. But often men get vasectomies when they're done having kids. Therefore, 
just because he had a vasectomy doesn't mean he's the killer. Um, so the task force at this point was forced to let Howard go. Um, and Howard said after to the press, in quotes, the police have released me. That's all I know. They have plenty of good cause. They're doing their job, end quote. So, like, he's not mad that the police interrogated him and arrested him, but uh, I don't like that he says they have plenty of good cause. It That seems a little suspicious to me. Now, one piece of evidence that the force had against Howard that wasn't, wasn't circumstantial that linked him to a victim was that Linda's boss had Howard's name and phone number written on a sticky pad in her office as a potential customer, which now, like I said, links him to a victim like work before he told the psychic story to the police. The second piece of evidence was a witness had seen a cream colored van and the driver and that witness picked Howard out during a photo lineup, but she wouldn't testify against him in court because Howard had seen her and she was afraid for her life. Also, I'm really sorry if you hear that outside. It is the garbage man coming to pick stuff up. So at this point, the police are looking for anything to get Howard to confess. Okay, so I paused while they were outside of the house. So they were trying to do anything to get Howard to confess. But in June of 1986, Jason Gay graduated from a school in Cali. It didn't say if it was high school or college I'm going to assume it was high school, um, but Howard did fly to California to watch him graduate, obviously. When Jason, while he was there, though, Jason actually died in a car accident, and shortly after this happened, Howard became a born-again Christian, and he moved back to Cali. So now, back in Hawaii, the police have offered a $25,000 reward for any info, which today, that would equal about a little less than $66,000. Um, and then they did monitor and look into Howard for years. But he could nev- they could never prove that he was involved with these five killings. Um, because after he became a born-again Christian, he the killing stopped. So a couple things could have happened. It could have been Howard. When he became a born-again Christian, he just stopped killing. Um, Or he wasn't involved, and the person who did do all the killings went to jail for something else, moved in general, or maybe had died. Um, So in 2016, though, former homicide Lieutenant Gary Diaz, um, who was head of um, Honolulu's police department's homicide detail during the killing, said, and I quote, Based on evidence we had and the witnesses we had and physical evidence, we felt we had enough. DNA could have been much greater asset for us in that particular case. Um, and Howard ended up dying on November 2nd, 2003 at the age of 60. And this case still remains unsolved. They do, like I said, and I read the quote, um, they do believe that Howard was the one who killed these women. Um, But what I didn't understand is they said he didn't have a criminal record. Like, no one, the killer wouldn't have a criminal record. But usually, they don't just start their criminal, like, path 
by killing. Like, a, it's been proven that killers usually don't just start killing. There's stuff that leads up to it, and there's nothing in Howard's life and nothing from what people said about Howard that led up to just killing besides the fact that he, like, kept asking this one girl for rides at the sailing club and the woman he beat up for not coming in the car. And then he escalated to killing. But I don't know why the girl getting beat up wasn't on his criminal record. What happened there? So that's that's crazy to me. Um, but like I said, this is a um, unsolved case. And I'll, any unsolved case I do, I'll continue to look into, see if they made any, you know, leads with it, if they got any closure. Um, and our next episode is about Idaho. And we are actually going to talk about one of the first female serial killers in the country. So I'm, I don't like what she did, but I am excited because it is a earlier, um, it's earlier in the 1900s. I normally like, I think as far back as I've gone, it's like 1980s. Um, and this one takes place like in 1912. Um, so it's kind of cool to see the different era. Um, so with that being said, I'm going to go do some more research. I hope you guys have a wonderful, uh, rest of your week. I will talk to you guys later. Love you. Bye.